Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. To many people, the name Martha Plimpton connotes movie star, big movies, independent movies. Martha Plimpton, welcome. You started on stage at age eight. Yes. You've been in a slew of off-Broadway and now two Broadway shows. You've mm-hmm. become affiliated with the Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago. So really a lot of stage experience, currently starring in New York in Shining City. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about Shining City. Howard and I have seen it, but for our audience it hasn't. A little bit about it. <clears throat> uh, Shining City is Connor McPherson's play about, um, well, it's about a man who is literally haunted by the ghost of his uh, recently deceased wife. Uh, And he goes to a young therapist, a new therapist, someone who has left the priesthood and gone into um, sort of counseling, uh, you know, because that's sort of... It's not an uncommon transition to make for someone who's been studying for the priesthood their whole life, but who can't stay uh, within the church, uh, who's also uh, struggling with his own sort of ghosts. And it's, you know, basically the conversations between these two men, the sessions between John, who's played by Oliver Platt, uh, who comes to Ian, played by Brian O'Byrne, to sort of excise uh, these this demon that he's being haunted by. And in, you know, the course of the play, there are five scenes. It's only an hour and a half long. There's no intermission. And in the course of the play, you meet a couple of other characters who touch on Ian's life, uh, Ian the therapist. One is Nessa, whom I play, who is his girlfriend and the mother of his child, his young child, who he has decided to leave, that he can he can no longer tolerate being in the relationship with her. And then the other is a young man named Lawrence, whom Ian meets and brings home back to his office where he's been living. Um, and you sort of discover things about Ian's inner life in that scene, things that he's struggling with in that scene. Your role is very interesting in that as you say, these are scenes. You have a single scene mm-hmm. in which to establish your character and play out all of these issues mm-hmm. in Ian's life and his relationship to you. What is it like having that concentrated a moment and just that single scene each night to play out? It's very interesting. I've never done anything like that before. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, I was never um, terribly worried or concerned about it, only because the scene, to me, it doesn't seem self-contained. It feels like the issues and ideas and feelings in that scene spill over into the rest of the play. And it feels very much part of the whole piece. So... I always feel, even though I'm off stage, I always feel like the things my character brings to the story are there in the audience's mind the whole time. Yet, you only are on stage for that period of time. Mm -hmm. 
what what are you doing the rest of the time? Are you preparing for it? Are you are you once once uh, your scene is over, you're you're marking time? Um, no, I'm at the big, at the top of the show. There's a, a full scene that introduces the main characters, and I sit backstage. I go backstage at places, and I sit there and I listen to the opening scene, uh, and then I make my entrance and I do my scene, which is about. Um, depending on what night you see it, between 14 minutes and 26 seconds and 1441. <laughs> um, we're very fastidious about times in this show. Um, and there's a reason for that, but that's not answering your question. Um, and then I come off stage, and generally I just I go to my dressing room or I go to the stage manager's office and hang out with them and listen to the play. Uh, the monitor is always on in my dressing room. I listen to the play every night because I feel like uh, every night I'm sort of reinformed by what I hear and it helps me to understand my place, my role, my job in those 14 minutes to be connected to what else is going on once I leave the stage. Um, that's very important to me and also I just love listening to it. I mean... There is a scene following mine in which Oliver Platt delivers about a 35-minute, essentially, monologue with very few interjections by Brian, where he tells his story. And I find it impossible not to listen to it, um, mainly because, well, I mean, Oliver is such a compelling, wonderful, imaginative actor, but he's also so present every night it's so different every night. And I don't mean to say wildly different. Of course, the themes, the ideas, the concepts are all there and they're all the same. But it is truly as if he is living that story every night. And that's an extraordinary skill. So I really like to be a part of that. It helps me to feel part of the play. I don't feel like I'm just going on doing my thing and leaving. Do you know what I mean? I feel very much that we're a company that way. Well, how, how is he different from night to night? Is it just inflection or pausing? Or, or No, or it what? really has to do with a sense of immediacy and the sense of being there. You know, it's very hard to tell a story in the past tense for 35 minutes. You have to, you know, you're saying, I was doing this, I was feeling that, you know, it would be very easy, and I think a lot of actors would fall into a rhythm or a pattern. What Oliver is able to do every night is to make you feel as if you are there experiencing those things with him for the first time, as though he's going through it right there before you, even though he's relating it in the past tense. He's feeling it in the present tense, and that's what makes it possible for him to come to the realizations he does and to grow and to, you know ultimately by the end of the play to become the man he is uh, so it, these are subtle differences um, and they have more to do with you know um, the immediacy of feeling really than with you know varying infle of course inflections are different of course we all try to do that a little bit every night but that's really the main thing we say you try to do it how much of that is influenced by the audience and their reaction does that differ from night to night itself Yes, it does, very much so. There are certain things that, you know, can be relied upon um, because they're structured, they're written into the play, or, you know, there are certain buttons, I guess, you feel you can press. But, of course, that's the beauty of the theater. It's a different audience every night, and so it's a different experience every night. 
and no two shows are the same. They're like snowflakes. And, uh, you know, once they fall, once they land, they're gone. So the pleasure is in enjoying those things and taking advantage of the moment like that. Um, I think, you know, my scene with Brian, which is primarily a fight, an argument, a breakup scene, it's very important, for example, for us to remember that just because the fight is over doesn't mean the relationship is over. The scene is over doesn't mean the issue is gone. And so it's important not to feel like we're doing a little play within a play in which we wrap everything up at the end. Everything has to have a sense of not knowing what's going to happen next, not knowing what we're going to say next to get what we want from the other person. I mean, these are basic, you know, acting 101 ideas, I guess, but they're at the heart of, you know, what we do. In preparing for the show, did you have an opportunity to talk with Connor McPherson at all about why the theme of ghosts and haunting is so much a part of of the writing that he does? We certainly know his play, The Weir, which in which that was a, a strong element as well. Mm-hmm, Did that mm-hmm. was was there a chance to talk about that? The wonderful thing about Connor McPherson is that, and Oliver talks about this too, um, is that he is a true. This is going to sound maybe a little more pretentious than I wanted to, and maybe more than Connor would want it to, but he is a true artist in the sense that he doesn't always know why he's writing what he's writing. He doesn't always know what the purpose of it is. The way he talks about it, you know, he likes a ghost story. He likes a good ghost story. And, of course, they're very, you know, the Irish tradition and Irish writing is full of them. Um, uh but he, I think, uses, maybe uses, I can't speak for him, but maybe uses the, you know, the sort of ghosty thing to excise his own or ask his own questions. You know, ghosts make it possible for us to sort of reflect our own fears outside of ourselves. We can place them somewhere else on something else. We don't have to look inside ourselves. So I think Connor is exploring the idea of how we use, you know, sort of the balance between the spiritual and the, you know, the earthbound and how we use these things to understand ourselves better. Now, all of the characters in the show are fictitious, including yours, Nessa. Mm -hmm. Did you talk with uh, Connor McPherson, the author, about your character, what her backstory is? Did did you invent your own backstory as to who Nessa is, where she's coming from? There are certain clues in the play. There are, uh, you know, there's mention of her father, who is a drunk, who is now living, at the time of the play, who is now living with her grandmother. Um... And, uh, but there's no mention of her mother, um, and there's no mention of any siblings. There's mention of her circumstance with Ian, uh, the husband, uh, the father of her child. She's living with him in a tiny room, a box room, um, which is essentially, you know, just a small, you know, almost a storage room in, in a small house, um, with his sister and, or with his brother and sister-in-law and their baby. Um, and she's very much alone. And he's essentially left her there to deal with the baby and live in the house by herself with a sister who hates her and a brother who is essentially disengaged, not connected, not interested in really what's going on and not really a part of, 
wanting to make things better. So she's very isolated. Everyone in the play talks about not having anywhere else to go. John is essentially kicked out of his house by this ghost and living in a, you know, in a bed and breakfast. Nessa is in a house where she doesn't belong with people she doesn't know um, that isn't her home. Uh, Ian is living in his out of his office. And, of course, Lawrence is living in the park, is homeless. So everyone in the play is homeless in some way. So we have clues like that. And we talked about certain things that might have brought Nessa to this, you know, circumstance in her life or where she comes from. More of a working class situation, but maybe not quite as working class as Lawrence is. Everyone in the play is of a slightly different uh, social class. Yeah. How about the meaning of the title, Shining City? Oh, you know, it's funny. Um, I have my own feelings about that, but... And and Brian actually speaks much more um, sort of eloquently and, you know, about this because he, of course, is from Dublin. And I've never been, um, sadly. I'd love to go. But um, a lot of people, when they see this play, even though it's five scenes with only two people in each scene, and all of it taking place within the confines of this one space, this one office, with hardly a view, really... A lot of people see this play and have a very funny reaction, uh, including a, a friend of mine had this reaction. He said, you know, he ended, you know, he came backstage after the show and he went, wow, what a crazy city, which is such a funny response. It's such a funny thing because you don't see the city. It's mm. not technically about the city you know you don't meet the people on the streets and it's not you know there's not a lot of talk about the inner workings of you know the town or anything but the sense of what is outside is very much inside this play I don't know what that's about I, I you know but it's an extraordinary thing it's a funny thing to me I personally my own feelings about the meaning of it have to do with our relationship with our spirituality and and our, you know, sort of earthbound, you know, trapped in our own bodies, you know, uh, sort of the dilemma between that, between living in the practical real world and our hopes and aspirations for ourselves, the spiritual life, the hope for something else that Ian talks about, which is for him, God. Well, when John introduced you, he talked about the the breadth of your career. But for a lot of people, there's often a little surprise if they first knew you from the Goonies, <laughs> wondering how you got to head a gabbler. But you really <laughs> did grow up in the theater. Yes. And, and can can you tell us about about because you were you were a child on stage at the public theater when you were, as John said, very young. That's right. Um, both of my parents uh, were actors. My father still is an actor. Um, my mother is no longer, but both of my parents were in hair on the original company. And um, I grew up, you know, in dressing rooms and on tour. My, my early childhood was on tour and in dressing rooms, going to see our friends in plays and spending a lot of time in theaters, hanging out, playing, play acting, getting up on stage and pretending I'm in the show, that kind of thing. And so it... 
was a sort of natural progression when I was eight years old, and my mother was working with Elizabeth Suedos, who was this very fascinating avant-garde, you know, theater maker and composer and writer and author and all of these things. And um, she, uh, you know, wanted me to do um, a workshop of her play Runaways. I was eight years old. So I did that. <clears throat> and then I went on to do uh, the Haggadah for her at the public when I was nine. With the designs by Julie Taymor That's as right, well. Julie I mean, Taymor's beautiful puppets and, oh my goodness, those shadow puppets and everything. To be a kid around those must oh have been my, something. There, there are images in my mind from that production that I will never, ever forget. They're really burned into my memory. The, the, the shadow puppets of the plagues and, you know, oh my goodness, the giant mask of Moses coming down the mountain. It was really quite an incredible, extraordinary uh, way to spend time as a kid. There's no question. Um, and uh, so I've just been doing it ever since. And I guess the pleasure for me in being a kid actor is that I, I um, <laughs> it got me out of school a lot. But, um, <laughs> but it also, um, I don't know, it gave me a community when I was very young. Um, it gave me a sense of belonging. You know, kids always need that. Um, and because our lives were sort of different, I guess, than other kids' lives, my mom didn't really work nine to five. It was a, you know, it was an unusual sort of life. Um, the theater is a comfortable place for me. But I would assume it was more of an adult community, that the people you were working with mostly adults. I worked with a lot of kids, actually. There were kids in Runaways and kids in the Haggadah, uh, and I worked with a lot of kids. Um, you know... It's a fleeting community. I mean, you know, each play you leave and you may never see those people again, but a lot of them you do. And you grow up with them or you... Um, and yes, and it's true. I did grow up around a lot of adults. And yes, I... Um, most of the people, most of my friends, um, people I know today from then were friends of my mother's as well and helped to raise me, essentially. Then when you went into film and you did Goonies and Mosquito Coast and Running on Empty, to, to name you know three particularly mm -hmm. well-known in Parenthood, of course, mm -hmm. was there a transition back to theater? Was it surprising to people that you were grounded in theater? Did you, did you have to look for the opportunity again? You know, um, I just... I've never strategized my career that way. I have found that the more you try to strategize and plan out your career as an actor, the more frustrated and angry you will become because it simply isn't yours to decide. You know, there are things you can do to avoid misery, but there's nothing you can do to ensure success in any field except work hard hope for the best, give it your all, and do the things you really love and want to do. So that period of doing mainly movies, it's just how it worked out at the time, honestly. It's just, oh, these things are coming up, and, you know, when you're making movies, there's no time to do plays because plays, you know, obviously take much more time to do, um, except in the case of The Goonies, which took about five months to shoot. Um... You know, when you're making movies, you're traveling all of the... You don't have the opportunity to audition for plays. 
But there were times in between there where I would do workshops or work on things, you know, on smaller off-Broadway productions, off-of-Broadway productions. I can't even remember all of the workshops that I did as a teenager. Um, I feel like there are just hundreds of them. And, you know, those two-week workshops that you do of new plays. I've done so many. So the whole time I just feel like I was always kind of flipping back and forth. And wherever the work is, is where I go. Well, you were in all these different films and very busy doing that. Did you make a conscious decision? Did you say to your agent, your manager, find me some stage work, or did it just come to you? The auditions come. They come if if you're, you know, out there or open to them. Um, but, but do you have to make it known that you're open to it? Do you have to tell the, the community, hey, come to me, call me? Um, yeah. You do to a certain extent. I think... When you stay away from the theater for too long, unless you're really like a huge movie star, which, you know, who they'd like to use in order to sell tickets or pay for a production, um, it's true. You do have to make a little bit more of an effort. You do have to go in there and you do have to... I mean, that is the... To me, that's the thing I love about the theater is ultimately, no matter what anybody says, the theater has integrity, generally. You always have to prove yourself. You know, you can't rest on your laurels. You can't depend on your name or the last movie you did being a hit because ultimately you've got to have the goods when you get up there. Um, that's the thing I love about it. And it's important. That's why, of course, they always they prefer you to audition and I'm more than willing to do it in, you know, in circumstances when I want to do the show. Well, of course, actors' performances often are made in the editing room and film. Exactly. But they can't be made in the editing room on stage because you're out there. They can't be made in the editing room <laughs> on stage. No, you are exactly right about that. And there's, you know, not that one is better or harder or easier, you know, whatever. They require a different set of skills, and it's a, it's a whole different can of worms, really. So, yes, you're right. You do have to make yourself open to it. You do have to tell people, guys, I really, really want to do this. Um, but ultimately, in the end, you know, you just, uh, I guess for me anyway, just in my particular circumstance anyway, it just seems that, uh, uh, I don't know, my life doesn't seem to have that much direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, w- since clearly it wasn't planned, how did you find your way to Chicago and how did you develop the relationship with the people at Steppenwolf? I was... Uh, I got an audition for a play called The Libertine by Stephen Jeffries. Um, and they were doing it at Steppenwolf. It was uh, starring John Malkovich and um, Francis Guinan and Al Wilder, two other members of the Steppenwolf company for many years. And uh, and I just, and they were auditioning people at Lincoln Center. I remember my audition very well. Uh, and I went in and I read. I read with a with for the artistic director Martha Levy, who was in town for auditions, and I read with um, I believe the playwright was there and the director was there, um, and uh, yeah, and that was it. And I I don't even remember if I had a callback or not. I think I was so terrified by that first audition. Um, maybe I did have a callback. I'm not quite sure, but I read for it and I and I got the job and I and I 
exploded with joy. <laughs> and you were invited fairly quickly into the Steppenwolf Company and are still one of the newer members of the Steppenwolf Company, even though you've been yeah. in the company since the late 90s. In 98, I joined. Uh, that The Libertine was in 96, and in 98, it was an extraordinary experience, and I, I was... I felt that I had in some way, you know, you you never really arrive. You're always in a, you know, sort of in a, in a way pursuing something in this life. But uh, I really felt like I had arrived. And then in 1998, <clears throat> I got a call from Doug Hughes and Martha Levy asking if I would come and do uh, play Piggy Mike in Playboy of the Western World. And they were doing it at Long Wharf, where Doug Hughes was artistic director at the time, and Steppenwolf was going to be a co-production, and Jim True was going to be playing Christie. So uh, they called me, and I said, absolutely, I will be there. I mean, uh, this was a huge thing for me, not having to... Um, uh, not being asked even to audition for it at the time was, for me, a tremendous honor. I felt they had uh, confidence in me, and I was really moved by that and uh, filled me with um, just a, a real sense of gratitude. And so I went to do that production. We did it at Steppenwolf, and towards the end of the run, they um, invited me to join the company. It changed my life. In what way? Uh... Well, first of all, it gave me an art a sense of having an artistic home. It was the first time that I had been asked to be a part of something bigger than just me in the pursuit of my, you know, the things I love. Um, there's something about being asked to join an ensemble um, that is established, that is... Uh, known for its groundbreaking work, for its historic productions, for its, um, uh, you know, revolutionary style of performance and approach to work, to uh, theater. There's something about being asked to join a company like that um, that just changes your life. It just really, it makes you feel like, wow, I guess I'm going in the right direction. I guess all the work I'm doing you know, means something. It to kind somebody. of validates what you've been doing. It really does yeah. validate it. And it and it also it says not only are we validating the work that you've done up to now, but we're we're showing you that we believe that you're gonna do even better in the future. It shows that they have a sense that you have promise and that's uh that's a huge thing. Earlier Howard in the same sentence mentioned the Goonies yeah. and Hedda Gabler. Yeah. <laughs> quite quite diverse. <laughs> tell us about tell us about Hedda Gabler. You, you you've gotten rave reviews for your performance in that, kind of re you. revitalizing that show. Thank tell, tell you. us about it. Well that was another time that uh, Doug Hughes called and and was towards the end of Playboy of the Western World that he asked if uh, he suggested we do this play, and he'd been wanting to do it again, he'd already directed it before, and he'd been wanting to reapproach it, um, and this time with a translation that he had adapted. Um, and I said, absolutely. So again, it was a co-production between Long Wharf and Steppenwolf, and it was a major turning point in my life doing that play and working with Doug Hughes, who is, in my opinion, one of the finest directors um, there is, certainly that I've ever worked with. And any actor who works with him tells you the same thing. 
He is an extraordinary thinker and a lover of actors. He really loves the art of acting. He loves the people who do it. Um, he's acted himself. His parents are actors, you know. Um, so we decided to do this, uh, this play. And, uh, you know, Hedda, Doug used to say, that Hedda Gabler is a play that suffers sometimes from title character syndrome. Hedda Gabler, which is of course not the name she takes, her play is Hedda. Her name is Hedda Tessman. But Hedda Gabler is her given name; is her father's name. And Hedda Tessman, who is the woman in the play, is not the catalyst for anything that happens in the story. She doesn't drive the story. She's reacting to everything around her. She's in many ways a cipher. Um, and the only way she can think to act, to do anything that has any meaning in her sort of fantasy of what meaning is, what life is, this sort of idea of Dionysian passionate, you know, this kind of like, Marquis de Sade version of the world that Loveborg, you know, is sort of lives for her that she's so fascinated by. You know, she's paralyzed by her own terror, her fear and her fear of perfectionism. And she's also 29 years old. Not a lot of women that age are given the opportunity to play her because it's assumed that it's too difficult a role. But the issues of a 29-year-old woman are very much the issues that Hedda faces. Questions of, or problems of realizing that the things that made you adorable and charming as a child are no longer so adorable and charming. And the tricks you used to use to get ahead and get by aren't working for you anymore. You know, and you've got to grow up, be an adult. These are things that are anathema to Hedda. They're just, you know... She's also seen as a sort of manipulator, a weaver of wicked spells. And the reality is that she's just not. She's living every moment in the moment, completely devoid of any sense of what to do next. You know, that's Aunt Julie's job. That's Taya's job. You know, that's Tessman's job. And more than anyone, it's Judge Brock's job in the play. So... We approached it from that perspective, in a nutshell, basically. And I think people were surprised in some ways by the way they felt they were maybe seeing this play anew, which was extremely gratifying, I know, for myself and I'm sure especially for Doug, because it was very much his vision that we were, you know, wanting to convey. With all of this great work, it's only a little over only in the past couple of years that you've actually gotten to play Broadway and Shining <laughs> City is, is your second Broadway show. Is there a difference about being on Broadway? Oh, there's most definitely a difference. Um, the amount of pressure is certainly a bit higher. Although I must say that working at MTC on Broadway I think is a special circumstance. Of course, you know, their history is off-Broadway. And so this, the feeling of, you know, the way things work there, you know, you're very, you're a little more, I guess, 
I felt a little more sort of protected and insulated from all of that, from the pressure of Broadway. But, you know, there's no denying that Broadway has a certain, you know, cachet, if you will. It has a certain, you know, special thing about it. And there's really, in a lot of ways, there's really nothing like walking to work on Broadway and coming into your dressing room. And um, there's something really special about that. But I forgot when we were talking about Hedda Gabler and you mentioned the Goonies and Hedda Gabler in the same breath. And I forgot that... (laughs) that there was an experience that I had that sort of where the two just sort of came crashing together in a strange way when we were at Long Wharf doing the show. And we were uh, doing a matinee and there were some college students in the audience. And I don't remember, I don't remember which college they were from. I I don't know if they were from Yale or not, but um, if they were, then you know, <laughs> Yale ought to raise its prices if that's possible. Or its but, standards, because I know standards. where you're going. But, um, but they, um, the, the the second act of the play begins with Taya and Hedda on stage, and uh, Taya is sort of nervously waiting for Loveboard to return from his night of debauchery, and Hedda is, you know, sort of strangely asleep on the sofa, and. I'm laying there with my eyes closed and my head on my hands and it's very peaceful and you hear the sound of the morning doves cooing, cooing and the lights are coming up and it's very quiet and all of a sudden out of the audience I hear Goonies! (laughs) (laughs) And I had to stay there asleep and pretend I didn't hear it and it was like my world came crashing down around me. It was the strangest experience. I couldn't acknowledge it, and yet, you know, the sort of magical spell of the moment had been broken. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, you really can never escape your past no matter where you are. And how Which you is the point sh- of Hedda Gabler, That's actually. right. That's exactly right. That's and right. how did you keep a straight face during all that? Well, the rest, I mean, I got to tell you, as soon as I heard that, I'm sure my face just flushed because I was thinking, oh, Forget it. Now now they're just going to be looking at me as, you know, Steph Steinbrenner from the Goonies. They're not going to see Hedda at all anymore. Man, I'm really in trouble. Well, you made your Broadway debut two years ago, mm-hmm. April 2004. You've been doing so much fine theater work at Steppenwolf, off-Broadway, so much film. Thank you. What took so long to get to Broadway? Honestly, honestly, I, it just never, the opportunity never came up. Just not the right role or... Right. Not uh, I. Well, I never. I, I guess I never got a job on Broadway before. I think there was a certain there was a certain element of, you know, things happen in life and as an actor when you're ready for them to happen. And I've always had a tremendous. Um, I've always had a lot of confidence as a kid. I had a lot of confidence. I think in my twenties. I started to lose a little bit of my auditioning confidence and auditioning became harder for me as I got older. There was more at stake for me and the more work I did and the more successful I got at that work, the more difficult it became for me to audition. Hmm. Not that I didn't want to or that I wasn't willing to, but because the pres- I felt the pressure more and I think that happens to a lot of actors. I did. And so it's possible that that had something to do with why there would be things that I would audition for that might be Broadway productions that I would, maybe I would choke 
I don't know. You know, it's possible. Mm. I'm sure it happens to everybody. But things ha- things always happen for a reason. And I feel like I'm here now because I'm ready for it. And you will be back on Broadway next season in Tom Stoppard's Mammoth Coast of Utopia. Do you know what you're in for with this project? (laughs) I barely know what I'm in for. I must tell you, I saw the schedule the other day, and it is just, it's really daunting. I mean, this is a massive work. This is, uh, certainly, this is the most complex uh, piece of work that I've ever been asked to do um, just in terms of the size of it, the sheer size, the number of actors involved, the time involved. Three parts, nine hours. There will be days when we will have nine hour marathons of all three plays starting at 11 a.m. I think there will be three or four days like that and doing these plays in repertory. So it's going to be an incredible experience. Really, I'm so looking forward to it. And when does that when does that start? Does that open? We start rehearsals in September, and I believe the first performance of the first play is uh, October seventh. I think. Hmm. Yeah. In, so, the, in the limited time left to us, because we're mm-hmm. getting gestures from behind the glass, I want to ask you a question. Several years ago, when I spoke with you. Um, you commented how great it was to do a new play mm-hmm. because you get your name in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering now that Suburbia, a show that you yeah. were in the original production of, is coming back. What is it like to see work that you created revived? It's really strange. You know, I was just talking to Josh Hamilton the other day, who was also in Suburbia, and we were talking about that. He was like, I have never been in a play that's had a revival. It's the strangest feeling. It's really odd, and we we resolve that we are, in fact, going to go see it, that we really have to go see it. I know this, it will be a little bit different from the original. I know Eric is working on it to update it and make it a little more current, um, which would be necessary. Um, so that's really, that's exciting and very cool. But it's a strange thing. It's like, oh my lord, has it really been that long? My goodness gracious me. <laughs> it's kind of great. It's really wonderful. Well, Martha Plimpton currently at the Biltmore Theater in Shining City. Looking forward to seeing you in the Coast of Utopia. Thank you. And in future endeavors. I hope we'll see you back again and again and again on Broadway. It was nice being here. Thanks. And thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Martha. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.